Good morning. How are you this morning? I'm doing very, very well. It's Sunday, and I love Sunday. I love getting together and seeing God's people and worshiping with them. It is the highlight of my week every week, every week. Anytime that we can raise the Lord up in praise, it's amazing. Anytime we can sing to his greatness, it is amazing. I hope you feel the same. My name is Jason Averill. I am one of the pastors here at Grace, and uh, we are in the middle of our summer sermon series. And this sermon series is on theology proper. It's on the attributes of God. And each week, we're picking a different attribute to focus on. Last week, Pastor Wilson led us through a study on grace from the story of the prodigal son. And today, we're going to be looking at a closely related topic, his mercy. Now, I'd like to read, I'd like to read a quote from Louis Burkhoff. He kind of sets the stage in comparing grace and mercy together to kind of help us get a feel of what the similarities are and the differences are. He says, If grace contemplates man as guilty before God and therefore in need of forgiveness, the mercy of God contemplates him as one who is bearing the consequences of sin, who is in a pitiable condition, and who therefore needs divine help. It may be defined as the goodness or the love of God shown to those who are in misery or distress irrespective of their deserts. That is, whether or not they actually deserve his mercy isn't important. The fact that they are in misery and in distress and he is moved to compassion, that is what is important and that is what mercy is. So today, we're going to be looking at the book of Daniel chapter 9. And let's pray and then we can jump in. Father, Lord, you say in your word through your prophet Isaiah that your word, just as the rain and the snow fall upon the earth and bring life, bring seeds to germination, and therefore bring food to people, so your word does go out, and it doesn't return void. Lord, your word goes out and it is powerful it affects effects change in everyone who hears it we pray lord that that be true today in this sanctuary jesus you are the word made flesh you are the one that the lord spoke out into into creation and you came accomplishing all all of the work that we needed. And we praise you for that. Holy Spirit, because of the work of Jesus, you now dwell with us. You dwell in our hearts. And you illumine our minds. And you constantly turn our hearts to our great Savior. We ask, Lord, that you be active. Active during this sermon. We ask that you make Jesus big in our eyes make ourselves small, very small in comparison because it is Jesus that we want to see. Amen. 
So, before we jump in, we've been bouncing around in the scripture a lot during this sermon series. And that's because no one, you know, book goes through all of the attributes of God. And today we're in the book of Daniel. Last week we were in the book of Luke. I think it'd be good to kind of set the stage, give you some context of where we are in the story of God's people right now. So I'm going to give like a 20,000 foot overview of the story of God's people. It'll be brief, I promise you. So back in Genesis, Genesis 3, we have the fall of mankind. Adam and Eve sin, they come under a curse And then they are exiled from Eden. And while the curse is being pronounced, I hear you back there. I like that. (laughs) I like it. It's good. Um, While the curse is being pronounced, they get the first gospel pronounced to them as well. It's in Genesis 3.15. Theologians call it the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. And what they are promised is that there is somebody coming. There is somebody coming from the seed of the woman who is going to deal with the serpent. The serpent tempted them into sin, and this one who is to come, this Savior, will be bruised on his heel by the serpent, but he will crush the serpent's head. And that's the promise that we have. And then we fast forward a little bit in Genesis until we get to Abraham. And in Abraham, he's called out of Ur into the land of Cana. And when he's called out, he's also given a promise. He's promised that his descendants will be more than the stars in the sky, more than the grains of sand on the seashore. That's how numerous they would be. And we also get just a little bit more information about this coming Messiah about this seed. It would be a seed from Abraham's line. And in him, all the nations of the world would be blessed. We fast forward a little bit later, about 400 years later, sorry, 200 years later. 400, it's fine. And we see the people of Israel are enslaved in Egypt and God raises up Moses for them. And they get led out of Egypt. And as they're led out of Egypt, he's with them in a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. And then they get to Mount Sinai and they're given the law. And as they're given the law, the Lord says, I have saved you. And this law, this law tells you what I'm like. It tells you what I value. As you follow it, you love me more. Follow it. And then he also tells them this that they will stop following it one day. They will. That's going to happen. And when it does, he's going to chastise them. And then he'll chastise them again and again until finally they're exiled. They're spread out over the earth. But, he says, when you repent, I will have mercy on you. And then... Moses also tells us just a little bit more about this coming Messiah. He said he's going to be a prophet. He's going to be a prophet like me who's seen God face to face. Moses saw God face to face in the tent of meeting through a veil. But this prophet to come is going to see he's going to be a great prophet like that. 
Then we get to King David. King David is a man after God's own heart. He's a great man of God. And yet, though people at first thought he might be the Messiah that they had been looking for, that, that hope got dashed because he went into grievous sin. And the Lord says that he's a man of blood and won't even let him build God's temple because of that. But he gives David a promise. He gives David the promise that there's one coming, that one coming, and this one will be a king in David's line. So we have that he's the savior, that he's a prophet, that he's a king. And then in one of the Psalms that David writes, he starts talking about this coming Messiah, and he says that he will actually be a priest as well, a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so the coming one is going to be a savior from, that's a prophet, a priest, and a king through whom all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And then Solomon comes into power, and he's really wise, and he builds up the kingdom, but he, he has a really cruddy family life. His sons start fighting after his death, and they rip the kingdom apart. Northern Israel goes off into sin really quickly and gets carried off by Assyria in 722 B.C., never to be seen again. Southern Israel, they are kind of faithful, kind of not, back and forth, back and forth, until around the 600s. Babylon has come in. They've swallowed up Assyria. They've conquered it. And they're starting to press down on Judah's border. And in 605, they take the first exiles. It's a small cadre of nobles and their sons take them off to Babylon. And then Judah rebels against them. And in 597, there's another exile. And it's about 10,000 people. And they go off into Babylon. And then 10 years later, they rebel again against Babylon. And Babylon comes in and destroys Jerusalem, destroys the temple. And the glory of the Lord that had rested on the temple from the time that Solomon built it left the temple. And that's where we are in God's story. We're right there, right around the mid-500s. Right at this time, we have three prophets going around Israel. We have Jeremiah. He's in Judah. We have Ezekiel. He's ministering to the people who are in exile. And we have Daniel. Daniel, who's taken the role kind of like Joseph did in Egypt, where he's actually ministering to the people of the court. He's the advisor of the king. They're in a country that hates them. God's people are in a country that hates them. Their beloved nation has been destroyed. Their temple has been destroyed. Their main city has been destroyed. All hope seems to be lost. And they're thinking to themselves, how long? How long, O oh Lord? When will your anger relent? When will you have mercy on us again? 
And that's what we're going to talk about today. So we're reading from Daniel chapter 9. We're not going to read all of it, uh, but I'm going to read some selections of it. And then if you keep your Bible open, I'll refer to some other passages. If you could please stand for the reading of God's word. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer. Uh, This is starting in verse 3, sorry. Seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenants and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. And then skipping to verse 8. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. And then skipping to verse 16. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill. Because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, Listen to our prayer, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolation and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Do not delay for your own sake. O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. While I was speaking and praying, Daniel says, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring an in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Amen. All men are like grass and all their glories are like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But God's word stands forever. You may be seated. So we're looking today 
at Daniel's pleas for, mer pleas for mercy. And we're going to look at it in three different ways. We're going to look at his prayer for mercy. We're going to look at God's response of mercy. And then finally, we're going to look at God's promise of mercy. So that's his prayer for mercy, the response of mercy, and the promise of mercy. So we start out this chapter with just this awesome prayer from Daniel. It's a powerful prayer of contrition and repentance. He pleads for mercy throughout all of it. The word mercy is mentioned many, many times, and the concept is there constantly. We're told in the first two verses when he made this prayer and why. So if we look at verse 1 and 2, it says, In the first year of Darius, that's King Darius of Persia. This means that it, this would have taken place about 539 B.C. You know, Daniel, Daniel was born in 620 B.C., if you do the math on that real quick, that means that he's about 80 years old. All these dates are approximate, but he's about 80 years old. He was taken, he was taken to Babylon in that first group of nobles, which means he went there when he was 15 years old, which means he has been in exile now for 65 years. And he's nearing the end of his life. And he has this burning question, how long, O Lord? You see that in verse 2. It says, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of the years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. And so he's been in exile now for 65 years, and he's read Jeremiah the prophet's work. He's read his book, and he knows that God told Jeremiah that they would be in exile for 70 years. They're coming up on it. They're coming up on it. He also knows his Bible. He knows his Bible very well, and right now I also think he's, he's thinking about a passage in Leviticus 26. He's thinking in Leviticus, Leviticus 26, this is the passage that I referenced earlier about God prophesying the, the exile way back in Moses' time. And if we look at verse, sorry, lost my place. Uh, if we look here at verse 27, but if, in spite of this, you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. And I will lay your cities to waste, and I will make your sanctuaries desolate. I myself will devastate the land, says the Lord, so that the enemies who settle in it shall be appalled by it. And you shall be spread out over the earth. But he's also thinking, starting in verse 40 of that same passage of this, but if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers and their treachery that they committed against me and also in walking contrary to me, 
so that I walked contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies. If then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. I will remember my covenant with Isaac and with Abraham. And I will remember my covenant with the land. He knows his Bible. He's thinking about Jeremiah's work, we know. We also know that he's thinking about Leviticus. And he has this promise of mercy from God in Leviticus. And he has this prediction, this prophecy of mercy from God in Jeremiah. And he knows then what he needs to do. He needs to make confession. Seventy years is all almost up, and he desperately wants to return to the land. And so he starts this prayer of confession and contrition. And in it, he actually calls out the name Yahweh five times. Five times he says Yahweh. That's God's covenant name. That's the name that God uses when he covenants with his people. And he is reminding God. He's trying to remind God as if God could forget trying to remind him of his covenant. This is what you promised, Lord. And it's an amazing prayer of repentance. Now, does this seem odd to you? Because I have to admit, it kind of seemed odd to me when I first read it. Okay, we don't know much about Daniel. In fact, most of what we know about Daniel, almost all of it, comes from the book of Daniel. It's 12 chapters. It's not very long. But that's most of what we know about it. But what we do know about him is that he was considered righteous. He was very faithful to the Lord. Very faithful. Under penalty of death. Even though he wasn't supposed to pray to the Lord, he would pray to the Lord. He got cast into the lion's den for it. And the Lord saved him through it. He was considered to be the wisest person in all of Babylon. He was a stalwart man of God, righteous and wise. Even Ezekiel, the prophet that's ministering to the people of Israel in exile, call him, calls him wise and says, he refers to Daniel as wise in the same way that you would refer to God as being wise. So why is he repenting? It seems like everyone else in Israel should repent. Everyone of the Israelites that are in Babylon should repent. Well, there are at least three reasons that I, I, I can give for that. Because Daniel, even though he was righteous and wise, he undoubtedly sinned. It's inevitable. He was just a man. He did sin. All sin is rebellion, and so, therefore, it's very right and fitting that he pray a prayer of contrition for his part in the, the totality of the sin of Israel that brought about this exile. That's just and right. There's also a sense in which sin in the Bible isn't strictly personal. You know, in, in our times, we look at sin, and we tend to think of it as, 
uh, very personal and only affecting us. And that's just not how the Bible treats it. That's one of the reasons why we do a corporate confession of sin, is because sin is both personal to each individual, and it's a corporate thing. And you see examples of this throughout the Bible, such as, you know, when Joshua led the conquest into Canaan. They, they weren't supposed to take any of the treasure from Jericho. They were instead supposed to burn it, put it all to flame. And yet Achan took some of the treasure for himself and hid it. And it wasn't just him that was judged. It was he and his entire family. We see it again whenever we look at Nineveh. You know, look at the book of Jonah. How does it starts out, start out? It starts out with God saying to Jonah, Jonah, rise and go to Nineveh, that great city, for their evil has come up before me. And we can bet that though everybody in Nineveh sinned, the particular sins that God was angry about, not everybody was guilty about them, guilty of them individually. But they were all held to account because they were all part of the same body, the same family. And we see it, of course, most strikingly in the exile. Ezekiel, wonderful man of God, yes, he sinned, but he did not go after foreign gods like all those other priests. He was faithful, yet he went into exile too. And so there's a corporate responsibility for sin that's present in the Bible. And I also think it, it is because he's righteous and wise. You know, why did he write this prophecy down? Why did he write this prayer down? It's because the prayer and the response from God, they weren't just for him. They were for the people. The prayer was for the people so that they could model their prayers after it, so that they could repent as well. Because if they could see that Daniel, one of the most righteous and wise people that they knew, was praying a prayer of contrition and repentance, they would too. And if they saw God's response to him, then their hope could be bolstered too. What reason... What reason did Daniel give for why God should be merciful? Well, the first, like we discussed, is his covenant. He used his covenant name over and over again. He said, because of your covenant, Lord, because of your covenant, you should be merciful. In verse 17, we see another reason. It says, now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Not for the sake of the people, but for God's own sake, for his own glory. That's why he should make his face shine upon the city and the temple. That's why he should bless them. That's why he should show mercy to raise up his glory. Verse 18 continues. Daniel says, Oh my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations. And the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness. It's not because we're good, Lord. 
We know we're not. We know we've sinned. We know we've completely and utterly blown it, that we've rebelled at every chance. It's not because of our righteousness, he says, but because of your great mercy. Because this is who you have said, who you've testified that you are. In the prophet Micah, chapter 7, verse 18, we see this kind of reiterated from another point of view. And this was about 100 years earlier. Micah, when he's speaking of God, says that he is the God that delights to show mercy. It's not a grudging thing for him. It's not something that he says, well, I guess I've punished you enough. No, it's something that he delights in. He takes great joy in mercy. On the contrary, in Ezekiel chapter 26, God says that he takes no joy in the death of anyone, not even the wicked. And then finally in verse 19, it says, O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive, O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, again, for God's sake, for his glory. O my God, because your... That is, Israel is called by your name. They actually represent you. This is a good reason for you to have mercy because your name is now being defamed just because of us. Restore the light of your countenance to us. Please, Lord, for your holy name. So how does God respond to Daniel? Starting in verse 20 again. While I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me, saying, O oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out, and I have come to tell it to you. For you are greatly loved. You are greatly loved. So God responded immediately. It took a while, it seems, for Gabriel to get there. It's kind of odd, you know, the time lapse. You'd think it'd be instant, but evidently it's not. In fact, you know, later on uh, in Daniel, we have uh, another angel has come to him and has apologized for being late, which is just weird. But it wasn't immediately that Gabriel got there, but it was immediately that he was sent out. As soon as Daniel started his plea for mercy, he was sent out. He did not delay. And what was the word that God was given, that Daniel was given by God? He was given first and foremost that God greatly loved him wasn't just that he put up with him. It wasn't that he had been mad, but now 
his heart was softening. It's that Daniel was greatly loved. His first response is often to remind us whenever we have these prayers, these pleas for mercy, his first response is often to remind us of his covenant love for us. Daniel was trying to remind God, trying to remind God of his covenant duties. And God goes to him and says, no, let me remind you of how much I love you. But he doesn't stop there. Verse 25, Gabriel says, no, therefore... And understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. It's not just that Daniel is loved. That's not the only response. It's also that Jerusalem's going to be rebuilt. That's the word that's gone out. That there will be a priesthood in the temple again. That's what it means by the anointed one. And it's not, it's not, let me say this precisely. It is not that Jerusalem and the temple are God's main concern. But that was Daniel's main concern. He wanted to return to his homeland. And so God answered that. He didn't just brush past it. He actually said, be of good cheer. Jerusalem's going to be rebuilt. The temple is going to be rebuilt. The people are going to go back. The anointed one will be in the temple again ministering. So the point here is that the Lord answers Daniel, Daniel's prayer by saying that the city and temple will be rebuilt, by saying that he greatly loves Daniel. But he also says this right at the very end. After, sorry, verse 26. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end shall, there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. He says, well, yeah, the city of Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt, Daniel. Have great hope in that. That is what you wanted to know. The temple is going to be rebuilt, Daniel. Yes. But unfortunately, the people are going to cause it to be destroyed again. That's kind of a bummer. God is saying that Daniel's prayer is going to come about, that his answer to Daniel's prayer is going to come about. But Jerusalem is going to be destroyed and the temple is going to be destroyed. How is that good news? How at all is that good news? Well, it can only be good news because of God's promise. Because we skipped a verse. We read it originally, but in this past reading, we skipped it. Verse 24. 
Gabriel says, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. So God's prophecy here that he's given Daniel through Gabriel, it could very easily be interpreted as being holy about rebuilding Jerusalem and the temple, except for one particular phrase. And that's the, when he says to finish the transgression, that could just be the original transgression of Israel that got them into exile in the first place. When he says to make an end of sin, that could just be to reinstitute the sacrificial system. To atone for iniquity, that could be that there's a high priest again in the land that is actually going through the yearly day of atonement, atoning for the iniquity of all the people. That could be it. Anointing the person who is anointed to, uh, and the anointing of the most holy place. That could just be the institution of a new high priest. But there's one phrase in there that makes that impossible, and that's to bring in everlasting righteousness. This has to refer to something grander, bigger, it's referring not just to the rebuilding of the earthly Jerusalem and the earthly temple. No, God is speaking of the end times. He's speaking of the Messiah coming. He is referring directly to the Messiah. And this is in the same way that Jeremiah refers to him as the branch that is coming. The same way that we've seen throughout all of Scripture leading up to this that the Messiah is coming, and that's reiterated here. And Daniel certainly knew the Lord's meaning here too. He had to have. How? Well, again, because he knew his Bible. You know, he had been meditating on Jeremiah, and he knew that Jeremiah, in just a couple more chapters, talked about the branch of David, the, the promised coming king, the anointed one who would come and rule who was both a priest, a prophet, and a king, and that he would rule forever and that he would be called the Lord is our righteousness. He knew that. And how amazing is that? That's part of the response given to Daniel, that he would get this amazing promise confirming what has been said in Jeremiah and confirming what has been said in the entirety of the Bible to this point, that God is still committed to deal with with sin finally and fully. With that one phrase, it's as if he is saying, Daniel, you're asking me something way too small. You want to know if you're going to go back to your land. You want to know if you're going out of exile. You know what, Daniel? Let me show you the extent of my mercy. My mercy doesn't stop with sending you back. To your land. My mercy doesn't stop until I have redeemed you. Until I've redeemed the entire world. In light of this, the destruction of Jerusalem and the sanctuary, that is the physical temple and the physical city of
It's a confirming act for us. He has prophesied that this is to come. Verse 27, he talks more about the anointed one, the prince who is to come. And he says, and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. And for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. What is he talking about there? Well, again, going back to Jeremiah, he's talking about the new covenant. He's talking about the new covenant made with Jesus. That is the anointed one. That is, he is the anointed one. He is the prince who is to come. And when he comes, he makes a strong covenant with his people. And when he makes a strong covenant with his people, he puts to rest the endless sacrifices in the temple. And in order for that to happen, what has to happen? The temple has to be destroyed. That's God's promise. So what about us? Where do we turn when we feel what Daniel was feeling, when we feel the burden of our sin, when we feel like God has forgotten us? Where do we turn? Where do we turn when we're suffering, when we need his mercy? Where do we turn? Well, we turn to the same place that Daniel turned, to God's promises. That is the only place to turn. You see, Satan likes to accuse. He likes to accuse us to God. Look, God, look what they're doing. He likes to point the finger. He also likes to accuse accuse God to us. We see that in the garden where he accuses God to Adam and Eve and tells them that God isn't quite as great as they think. And Satan does that for us too. Whispers in our ear and tells us that God really isn't all that merciful. Oh, if he really knew you. If he really knew you, he wouldn't love you. There's no way that he would be merciful for you. That's what Satan says. But what does God's word say? God promises throughout the Bible that he's going to put an end to sin. He promises throughout the Bible that he's going to crush Satan's head, that when Satan tries to accuse you to God, we see in like the prophet Zechariah, Joshua, the high priest, is before the throne of God. And Joshua, at the time, he's considered the most holy person in all of Israel, and he's dressed in filthy rags, and Satan starts to accuse him to God. And God said, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord rebuke you. No, we have promises in the Bible that have been laid out for us. Some of them are the same promises that Daniel was relying on. And some of them go a little bit beyond it. Or actually a lot beyond it. And so, we see Daniel, he's looking back into Leviticus and he's seeing what God has promised, that he's promised mercy. He's looking back at Jeremiah's work and he's promised mercy. And we look back through the entirety of the Bible and see that God has promised mercy. He has promised to make an end of our sin, to reunite us with him. You know, 
one of the things that many secular scholars try to discredit about the book of Daniel is its date. They really don't like the book of Daniel at all because Daniel makes a lot of prophecies. And in particular, he makes prophecies about the ancient Near East, about certain kingdoms that would rise and fall one after another. And, you know, it just so happens that those kingdoms rose and fall, fell in the same order exactly as he predicted, exactly as he prophesied. They don't like the book of Daniel. And so they keep trying to push the date of the book of Daniel a little bit farther forward so that they can say, well, it's just somebody, you know, in the second century B.C., who was looking back on everything that had happened, and they just rewrote it into history. But they can't push it back beyond about 150 B.C., which is a real problem for them and a real great boon for us. Why? Because right here, right here, we have a promise, a promise of a coming Messiah, a promise of somebody who will come, who is ordained before the foundation of the world to take our sin from us and make atonement for it and to bring in a reign of everlasting righteousness. We have that promise. We also have this prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple that would make an end to the sacrificial system. You know what happened in 70 A.D.? In 70 A.D., the Jewish zealots rebelled. They rebelled against the Roman Empire. And when they rebelled against the Roman Empire, whoo, the Romans did not take kindly to that. No, they went in and they razed the city. They sieged it for a year. And then whenever they broke in and finally took the city, they went to the temple and they threw the temple foundation stones down. Everything was torn down and nothing has ever been rebuilt. And God told us that would happen right here in Daniel. His promises in the Bible have been proved true again and again and again. Jesus came, he claimed to be the Messiah, that he would live our life for us and die the death that we deserve on the cross, all to take our sin from us so that he might give us his righteousness. He is the only sacrifice needed. We need nothing else. It was decreed before all creation, and we have seen his glory like John says in chapter 1 of his gospel full of grace and truth. And this, this mercy flows out from Jesus at the cross to the entirety of creation. It's interesting in that same chapter that, that Jeremiah, um, sorry, that Daniel was looking at from Jeremiah, chapter 29. Jeremiah says this in verse 7. He's talking he sent a letter to the people in exile. And he says, But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you in exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. There's an interesting parallel to what happens there, what 
Jeremiah has reminded the people in exile and what happens at the cross. In, when the people went into exile, it was very devastating for them. It really was. I mean, it was horrible. The most horrible thing that they had ever experienced, that any culture really could ever experience. And yet, what does God say? God says, seek the welfare of the city. Actually, pray for Babylon. Pray for the people who took you into exile. Because in its welfare, you will find your welfare. As it does well, you will do well. And it's this image of Israel being put in Babylon as an act of mercy to Babylon. We see the same thing happens to the world at the cross of Jesus. There was one theologian who, he was just doing a little thought experiment, and he said, you know, I wonder, I wonder what the world would look like if you had some sort of special magnet and you could suck up every reference to Christ And his answer was not much. All of our modern life is dependent upon science. All of science is dependent upon the scholastics. The scholastics were Christians who set up the first universities. All of our hospitals, those were invented by Christians. All of our orphanages, also invented by Christians. Public education, invented by Christians. There is literally nothing in the world that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection hasn't touched. It has been reshaping the world for 2,000 years, even for unbelievers. And even unbelievers are benefiting from the great mercy of God that flows out to them through common grace. Even unbelievers. How awesome is that? That God's mercy for an unbeliever is so great, how much do you think his mercy for you will be? Much, much more. Because, dear Christian, you, like Daniel, receive the same answer. You are greatly loved. Greatly loved. Let us pray. Father, Lord, you have given us a great gift in the Scripture, a great gift in all of your promises to us. And Lord, through the Scripture, we can learn who you are. Through the Scripture, we can meditate upon your promises, and we can see and be reminded constantly of your great love for us. Lord, thank you for your mercy. Thank you. Thank you for not leaving us in our sin and misery, but instead sending Jesus to us so that you might redeem us and also bless the world, all nations, through our great and glorious Savior.